Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Now those were who were was scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who were coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For the whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judah. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The year was 1958, and Carl Witt, who had formerly pastored a church near here in a nearby town, uh, left that church because of a dispute that was had about how the missions program at that church was functioning. And uh, Carl and his wife Vera and their children were waiting on the Lord here in Delaware, trying to figure out what the next step might be for them in their ministry. And I believe if I have the story right, there was, uh, this is according to a video that uh, Vera Witt told the story. Uh, there was a group of people, a cluster of people in Delaware who had been attending various churches, but had been going to a Bible church down in Columbus. And looking at the lay of the land of the churches here in Delaware wasn't always good. And they desired, this group of people desired the teaching of God's word that they were experiencing down at the Bible church in Columbus. They desired that teaching here to be in Delaware. And so as the story goes, Carl and Vera with some friends were at a birthday party where a lot of these folks had gathered. And somebody leaned over to Carl and Vera and said, do you think this could be a church? Well, uh, a group of people out of that birthday party began to meet just to gather in prayer and ask the Lord, hey, is this something we ought to be thinking about? I mean, church planting is not easy work. Uh, you have no building, you have no land, you have no nothing. You just have a group of people. And so uh, a group of people, 1958, began to gather on Sunday mornings in various places. I think the first gathering was at an armory building that's no longer here. They began to gather in uh, worship the Lord together. They set up chairs in the armory. They packed children's stuff, 
Uh, they had uh, portable cribs, portable uh, you know, toys to play with for the kids, and suitcases they would carry, set it up on Sunday, have a church worship service, and then tear it all back down and, and, and leave the rented space. And this went on for some time. Eventually, this property at 45 Bell Avenue was purchased, and the room that you all know as the commons was constructed, and Delaware Bible Church began to meet here. Now, I share all this uh, to share that today we're going to learn about the planting of a brand new church, and it's the first church outside of Jerusalem, the church in Antioch. And uh, I, think, I think what we're going to see here is some good um, wisdom about how churches are planted and what churches ought to be doing. And um, uh, since, since Brad, Pastor Brad mentioned it this morning, I'll, I'll just share, uh, for those of you that don't know, the first, church, the first pastor of this church was Carl Witt. That's Dan Witt's father. It's Levi, who was just leading us in worship. It's his grandfather, who's now home with the Lord. But Carl led this church for 25 years before he retired and moved south. And then uh, Marvin Hintz, who's not here today, of all days not to be here, uh, when I call on him. But Marvin Hintz uh, was the second pastor, senior pastor of Delaware Bible Church, and he served here for 27 years. And then he uh, retired, and I got here uh, almost 10 years ago this week, I think, um, and I've been here for 10 years. And before, hang on, Be before you uh, uh, get too excited about that, just remember, uh, I'm 40% through the minimum time that I'm allowed to be here, apparently. <laughs> Um, I think when I was interviewing here, uh, there was a QA and a in the, in the gym, I think, and Judy Scowden asked a question. I think Judy Scowden said, uh, would you sign a 25-year contract? And uh, I, did not, I did not agree to that. Um, I don't know what the Lord's going to do with us in the future, but um, it's been good to be with you for, for uh, 10 years. And honestly, my time here has been facilitated by the fact that uh, Pastor Witt and Pastor Hintz did such a good job uh, leading this church and the elders, and um, that Marvin Hintz made <clears throat> made things happen that you don't even know about for me, and that has to do with God's work in his life and the character that God has put in Marvin and Marilyn Hintz. So, um, with all that being said, let's talk about the church in Antioch. And what I really want to start with is just to ask this question, which I think, by the way, I think the culture is confused about today is what is a church, or what is church? If I go on to the internet, and I do a search for church, and then I click the button for images, what do you think appears in 100% of those pictures? A building. And let me just say, emphatically, before we get too far down, a church is not a building. This building is a tool. But if this building burns down tomorrow, Delaware Bible Church still exists. Amen? Because it's not a building. It's people, right? A church is people. So we know, at least we know that part. Okay, the church is not a building, it's people. Now, is a church a denomination or a fellowship? Well, denominations and fellowships of churches can be very helpful, and they can be also very harmful. And if you need any indication of how harmful a denomination could be, I would invite you to look at what's going on in the United Methodist Church right now as it separates into the United Methodist Church and the Global Methodist Church. Because there's a schism going on, a division, a schism going on. And, and that schism hits right here in Delaware, where some of those, some of the Methodist churches in this town are going to the United Methodist side, and some of them are going to the global Methodist side of the equation. 
So denominations can be useful, fellowships can be useful and helpful, but is that what a church is? Nah, I would say no. Those things can be tools for a church. Is the church uh, a local church, like Delaware Bible Church, or is it the universal church? Is it the fellowship of all believers, all followers of Jesus Christ across all the world for all time from the day of Pentecost till Christ returns? Well, yeah, it's kind of both, right? It's difficult to say that you're part of the universal church if you're not part of a local church. In fact, I think it's impossible to say that you're part of the universal church uh, if you understand what Jesus has, has asked us to do, what he commands, then you would join yourself to a local church. It's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. So in, in our text today, we're going to see the formation of the first church outside of Jerusalem. And it's very fascinating to me, the things that we learn from this text. And so we're going to, that's what we're going to do. We're going to ask ourselves the question, what does the formation of the church in Antioch teach us about church planting? So the first thing I want to share with you is the, the church's formation. So look at verses 19 and following. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Just to give you a geography lesson, I, I uh, should have put a map up here. It's hard to find good high-resolution maps, but um, they all went, that's all north, right? North of Jerusalem. And Cyprus is actually an island out in the Mediterranean Sea, so you'd have to take a ship to get to there. So they're going north to Phoenicia and north to, to uh, and they're going out into the ocean to Cyprus and Cyrene uh, to the north. And um, speaking, and they spoke the word to, the, to no one except the Jews. Okay, so they're starting to spread the gospel, but they're limiting that to the Jews. But some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, okay, so this is the non-Jews, right, uh, also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So we see what's going on here. What, was the, what, what caused this scattering of the church? The believers were scattered, scattered and the text just goes, goes ahead and tells us why that is. It's, if you go back to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, uh, we understand that uh, there, was, there arose on that day, this is after Stephen's stoning, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout all the regions or throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. It's very possible that the apostles, by virtue of their Jewish heritage, were kind of left alone. But those that were not Jewish, uh, perhaps the Hellenistic Christians or the, 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 you know, those guys had to flee. So we see that this, this fleeing. Now, I, I always talk, talk about this, and you're probably getting uh, tired of it. But Rome, when Rome took over a country, a place, a territory... They built infrastructure, right? They built infrastructure. And that saying, all roads lead to Rome, that doesn't come from nowhere. That becomes because the Roman Empire set about the, the task. They wanted to move their armies and their supplies around quickly, so they built roads everywhere. So when the Christians fled Jerusalem, they had, good, uh, they had a good way to get from A to B. And they traveled on these roads, and some of them ended up in Antioch. And what do we see next? We see believers gathered, okay? So these, these believers, we're focusing in now on Antioch. They, they're starting to gather there together, and they are um, starting to do some ministry work. Now, I want to take kind of an aside here. Uh, this is where I, I had to take a class in seminary called Bible Geography, and a, a little bit of research, some rudimentary research, 
When a town like this pops up and it begins, becomes to be the focus of the text, like Antioch is, it's good to get online or, or find some tools, a Bible atlas perhaps, and start to re- do a little bit of research on things about Antioch. Because Antioch, I don't even know if you know this, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. There was Rome, there was Alexandria in Egypt, and there was Antioch. About 500,000 people lived in Antioch, it is thought, at the time that this text is talking about. 500,000 people. Now, you all know, I, I talk about this all the time, I'm from Podunk, nowhere, right? I'm from Plasky County, Indiana. Don't say Pulaski. It's not Pulaski. It's Plasky. That's how we know you're not from around here if you say Pulaski. Uh, <clears throat> Plasky County, Indiana, I grew up in Francisville, which is just a, a little bitty stop on the Monon Railroad uh, for water when the steam engines needed water. Um, there's not much there anymore. In fact, the, uh, the bar just closed. Things been around since I was a kid. The old corral, it finally closed down. It's out of business. Uh, but um, there's a grain elevator there, as you would imagine, on a railroad spur, on a railroad line. There's a, a grain elevator. The, the grocery store closed down a few years ago. So we've got a family dollar, a gas station, and a pizza place that opens at 4 p.m. It's my favorite pizza on the planet Earth. I had a, I had a pizza when I was over there. Uh, uh, I was over there yesterday, the day before. Anyway... There's a big difference, folks, between living in Francisville, Indiana, and living in Delaware or Columbus. Can I just say that? Because let me tell you what. If you, uh, I'm I'm quoting Ed Zimmerman here, if you take a stupid pill in Francisville, Indiana, and do silly things, how many people know about it by the end of the day? Everybody. Everybody knows you. Everybody knows your mama. Everybody knows your grandpa. Everybody knows everything about you, who you're married, who your kids are. Everybody knows everything about you. And if you do something silly in Francisville, everybody knows it. And so there's, there's accountability there, right? If I'm a small business owner and I treat my clients poorly, I cheat them out of money, I'm not going to do business in Francisville very long. I'm going to be out of business very quickly, just from word of mouth. This was all happening before Facebook, by the way, and Instagram and all that. Uh, this was just the, you, know, you could call it Francisville phone book. You know? <laughs> hey. So <clears throat> in the big city, right, in, the, in larger towns like Columbus or Chicago or whatever, you can kind of disappear a bit. So on the one hand, it makes sense that the Christians who are fleeing from the persecution in Jerusalem end up in the third largest city in the Roman Empire, because it's probably a bit easier to hide out there. Um, but um, there's also some detriments to big city living as well. And by the way, can I just say this? I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I think this is also true of churches. I think that, I think that there are such things on our, in our land. We're not one of them, by the way, but they're called mega churches. Thousands of people, multi, you know, 10 services a Sunday, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's really easy to attend a megachurch and, th- and think in your mind, well, I went to church on Sunday, but nobody knows you, you don't know them, there's no personal connection. If you're having a problem in your life and you need some pastoral care, that's going to be a challenge for you. Um, I think it's already a challenge for us sometimes in a church our size because uh, there's many people. And so I am a, uh, I am a proponent of living in a situation where you can know people and be known by people in a way that brings accountability. Anyway, uh, just some things to chew on. They, they fled and they went and they were gathering there at Antioch. 
Now, I don't know what it is, but there seems to be all these indications in Scripture that God wants us to work together, right? There's verses in the Bible like Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You, you've heard that before, right? This is in reference to church discipline. Uh, but there's also Mark 6, 7. This is just an example. This is not a, a command, but it says, when Jesus called the 12, he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. When I'm working together with someone, another believer, or perhaps a group, there's more accountability there to get things done and to actually carry out the task that we've, we've been given to carry out. If I'm by myself, it's easier to just slough it off, take, a, take the easy road or whatever. And so the believers in Antioch begin to come together. They begin to come together and have fellowship with each other, and it's, it's, it's good. Uh, working together seems to bring us challenge, accountability, and encouragement. You can imagine that, you know, if you had two people that were working together, they were doing some evangelistic work, and the person that they were talking to totally shut down the person, sh maybe shamed them a little bit, and even said some unkind words to them. Their partner could then encourage them as they go about keeping on, keeping on with the work. So we see them, uh, they're gathering there, and they're working they're working together. Now, the, the, God's word doesn't tell us much about what's going on there structurally, if they had elders, if they had formal meetings, we don't know. All we know is that the, 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 the believers in Antioch seem to be coming together, they seem to be having some sort of fellowship, and they seem to be working together. It says they're sharing the gospel, and people are coming in sharing the gospel with the Jews. They started with the Jews, and then they're also sharing the gospel with non-Jews as well. They're working they understood what Christ, some of the words of Christ who said things like this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, to all nations, and then the end will come. And then he, uh, I threw in Psalm 93, 96, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. We have one of the greatest privileges, we have probably the greatest privilege on the face of planet earth. We carry, as Christians with us, the message, the only message that can save, the only message of hope in this cursed world that we live in. That, that though we are all sinners, though, though we are all broken people, though we don't measure up to God's perfect standard, like at all, that God sent his only son Jesus into this world, and, and as Jesus laid down his life on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sin, we have the opportunity to be followers of him. Because if we recognize that we're sinners, if we recognize that we don't live up to God's perfect standard, and we recognize that we're in need of someone to pay the penalty for our sin, why then would we accept that free offer of the forgiveness of our sins and then continue to go on and walk in them? No, it's, it's better than that. Jesus has taught us an excellent way of life a way of life that gives us the opportunity to grow and change and become more like him as we live. And so, you know, I, we say it like this. We make Jesus, we, we trust him as our savior from sin. We, we accept him as the Lord of our lives, not because it's anything oppressive. Well, it is oppressive in that it goes against what our flesh naturally wants to do. But if we're wise and we understand that this God loves us so much that he sent his, his only son to die for us. That's the magnitude of his love for us. 
then we also have to believe that the magnitude of God's love for us and the commands that he's given us are commands that are good and life-giving and healthy, both for us and the people around us. And so I don't know about you, but if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you'll understand that though God's ways often go against and counter what my flesh, what I want to, I want to be lazy, I I want to live for myself, not for others, I want to live for my own pleasure, not for not to help other people, but if we understand that that will actually kill us, that that's bad for us, and that what's good for us is to love God, love others by following the ways of Jesus Christ, then we understand that that what we have to offer the world in this good news of Jesus Christ is awesome. It's declaring his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. That's what the church of Antioch is doing. Next, we see the church's edification. Okay, so now we we pick it up in verse 22. It says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. I just love that the church in Jerusalem, you got to understand that this, from Egypt all the way up to what we used to call Mesopotamia, that that was a major trade route, right? That was a major trade route. It goes through Ephesus and all this. And, And so, News was traveling along this route, Antioch to Jerusalem. News was traveling along this route, and the the folks in Jerusalem are hearing, the church in Jerusalem is hearing that there are a group of believers operating and gathering in Antioch, and they send Barnabas to go check in. Now, we we can talk about that a little bit, right? We can talk about what were their motives behind sending Barnabas. You know, now if you want to take kind of a negative spin on this, well, maybe they were too sure that the people in Antioch knew what they were doing. So let's send Barnabas to make sure that they're doing things right and teaching Jesus' commands properly and all these kinds of things. But we have to we have to understand, folks. Even that is an act of love. I mean, if you're going to be followers of Jesus, let's let's do it according to what Jesus commanded. And Barnabas was well versed in those things. So that's what we see happening here. They send Barnabas. We also say, see, after they sent Barnabas, he, he came and saw, verse 23, the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Stop right there. I love this. I love it. It doesn't seem like Barnabas is coming in. Barnabas's name, remember, means son of encouragement. Barnabas doesn't come into the church of Antioch and say, okay, let me tell you all the things you're doing wrong. You're doing this wrong. You're doing this wrong. You're doing fix this, fix this, fix this. And who put Bob in charge? Get Bob out of here. You know, he didn't do that. He, he came and he saw what they were doing and they, they seemed to be producing good fruit. And he said, hey, keep it up. Keep it up. You guys are doing great. Keep going. So he was, he was uh, encouraging them. But I'm imagining, I'm imagining that, um, that Barnabas, if, if Barnabas is anybody, anything like me or any of you, Barnabas was probably observing what's going on in the church of Antioch and going and asking himself these questions like, how can I help these guys take the next step? And he goes, I know a guy. I know a guy. I know a guy who's smart. He's well-versed in the Old Testament, like really well-versed, like he sat under Gamaliel. And, and he had an encounter with Christ, and it changed his life. 
I need him. He and I, boy, we could put our heads together. We could really build up the church here in Antioch. So what's, what do we say? Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I forgot to read these verses. Let me just read John 13, 35. By all this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It was a loving act for the church to send Barnabas to check on the church in Antioch. Anyway, more help is gathered. And so Barnabas goes and gets Saul from Tarsus. Not a, long, not a short distance away, by the way. This is not like just walking a couple of miles. He went a long distance to get Saul and then brought him back. And it makes me think about 2 Timothy 4.11, which is probably the last thing that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. If you remember from their history together, Paul did not have a good relationship at all times with a guy named Mark, John Mark. Because Mark, at one point in their ministry together, had abandoned him and gone home. And, uh, and yet, in 2 Timothy 4.11, after some time had passed, this is what Paul says, Luke alone is with me. He's probably in prison at this point. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Barnabas is kind of having the same thing going on. This happens later. Mark and, and Paul happen later. But Barnabas is having a, a similar thing. Who can help me? Who is useful? Who can help me to train up this church in Antioch and to edify this church in Antioch? Saul. Before I go too much further, let me ask you this question. This is just between you and the Lord. When it comes to your life, where do you find your usefulness in the church? to this body? And that's a question that we each need to wrestle with because as we're going to learn in the next little subsection here, uh, my job is to help equip you for the work of ministry. My job is not to do the ministry by myself or with just me and the other pastors or me and the elders. Uh, no, my job, our job is to equip you for the work of ministry. And so my exhortation to you this morning is this, be useful to the body of Christ. Make yourself useful. Some of you are useful because you're very encouraging. Some of you are useful because you're very adept at working with children. Some of you are useful because you're very adept at sharing your faith with unbelievers. Some of you are useful for a whole host of other reasons that happen behind the scenes. But make yourself useful. All right, then training for ministry. Take your Bibles. Uh, uh, well, let me first finish the reading here. It says, For a whole year they, they met with the church, Saul and, uh, and um, Barnabas. They met with the church and taught a great many people. In, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And this is the part that I was just referencing. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4, that great passage of Scripture. Uh, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. If you can gain mastery, like complete and total I know, this ver I know this chapter of the Bible, and I have applied it diligently to my life. If I could pick one chapter of the Bible to tell you to apply as a Christian, Ephesians 4. So much in Ephesians 4. Anyway, Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11, and he, the he is Jesus, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, for what? To equip the saints 
for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness, I'm sorry, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's just stop right there and let's just ask this question and answer it collectively out loud. Have we, as individuals in this church, has any of us yet attained to the stature of the fullness of Christ? We have not, which means we have work to do, right? We've got access to God's word. The Holy Spirit is operating in the lives of each and every one of us who are believers. And so we have a task ahead of us, and that is to build each other up, to, to be intentional about how we speak to one another and challenge one another and minister to one another in such a way that it makes us stronger and more like Jesus. That's our job. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro, tossed, I'm sorry, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth of love, here's the, how, here's the how. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Yesterday, uh, I had an opportunity to attend a funeral in South Bend, Indiana for a, a dear lady, a friend of mine who died um, relatively young, 67 years old. Um, she had early onset dementia and uh, over a course of about a decade, she died. And um, she and I and her husband were involved in Checkpoint Bible Camp, which is the camp that I started back in Indiana with Justin Hutz, Dan Nave, and, uh, and myself. And Cheryl Nave, his wife, was a big part of that. She, she passed away. It was a great funeral service. Lots of just remembering who Jesus was, what he's done in Cheryl's life, and how she's with the Lord now. And just the, the room was filled with hope and joy, but also sadness that she wasn't with us anymore. Anyway, I say all that to say that, that this camp thing that we started, and is still going on, the, the, the week of camp just finished uh, the week before last, this thing is one of the things that, that we got involved with is just a bunch of believers trying to get something done and God just took it and just ran with it, right? And it just seemed like, it just seemed like, it reminds me of this passage, you know, after you, you work at something and you, you're trying to build the, the body up, all of a sudden it just kind of takes on a life of its own and there's so much love and encouragement and building up that it's just, you kind of stand back in awe and watch it happen and that's what I want for this church. For us here at Delaware Bible Church, we're so committing ourselves to loving one another and encouraging one another and building one another up that all of a sudden it just kind of takes on a life of its own because God is at work in our midst and it's 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 something that we all just look at and go wow God is awesome and he's working in our midst we as his people have to yield ourselves to that reality we have to be in a training mindset I am a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I'm coming to Delaware Bible Church not just to sit soaking sour, but to receive instruction from God's Word that I'm then going to incorporate in my life and in the way I treat others. 
Do you have a training mindset? Are you here to learn and grow? Or are you here to check a box that said, God, I attend to church on Sunday. We're good. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in that at all. And I hope that you aren't either. So they were training them for ministry. By the way, just before I leave this point, uh, I, I just thought I'd share with you uh, some of the major things that I think are important in your training exercises. Um, and, and in case I don't talk, don't talk about this explicitly, what I find that most Christians need, just as foundational stuff, is number one, to understand their identity in Jesus Christ. If you have not yet come to the understanding as a Christian that your identity is not found in your job, because you're going to retire from that someday. Your, your identity is not in your wealth, because that could all be gone. And our government works really hard to make sure that happens, right? <laughs> As a little dig, sorry. Your identity is not in your job. Your identity is not in your wealth. And if I could step on a few toes, your identity is not in your psychological diagnosis. I realize that in our congregation, we have folks that struggle with, with mental health. And that's, and that's, that's fine, that's good, and those, those things are, you know, they're real. People really have genuine struggles in those departments. But the moment that you place your identity in that psychological diagnosis, you're missing the boat. You are a child of the King of kings and Lord of lords. The ultimate, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present being in this universe sent his son to lay down his life for you. And though you have these struggles, they do not define who you are. This world needs to hear that message. Amen? So we need to understand, as part of our training, our understanding, we need to understand our identity in Christ. And there's really good resources and books out there that I can point you to. Secondly, I think we need to understand the fear of man and the impact that it has on us as Christians. When we begin to operate our lives in the fear of man and not in the fear of God, bad things happen. Churches split, people get out of control. We have to operate our lives in the fear of God. And again, there's really good resources that you can learn to do that. The third thing I would share with you is after that, if you can get those two things nailed down, the third thing that you really need to understand is how to feed yourself from God's word, how to study the Bible and to really internalize it and to begin to practice these things for yourselves. And there's really good resources for that out there as well. Why? Because the day is coming. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you've read the book of Revelation. But the day is coming. And it may be nearer than we think that the church will once again be under persecution and may be scattered. And will, will you, will you be one of the people that winds up in a city like Antioch and begins to assemble with other believers and begins to just keep carrying out the, the ministry of Jesus Christ, the mission of Jesus Christ, or are you ill-equipped for that? You need to understand, not just hear it from me, but you need to understand how to feed yourself and to understand how to study God's word for yourself. So when the persecution comes and they take the church and they smash it and they scatter us into a thousand pieces, it'll be the biggest mistake they've ever made. Because they're going to send out a thousand missionaries into the field. <laughs> not just one pastor, not just 12 elders. 
Anyway, are you, do you have a training mindset? The third thing that we see, and again, this is really important. The third thing that we see in the Church of Antioch is church action. Church action. We get back to Acts chapter 11. Pick it up, picking it up in um, verse 27. Now, the, in these days, a prophet came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, uh, sorry, in those days, prophets, plural, came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over, the, the, over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. I'm not going to get into how they figured this out or who this prophet was. There's not a lot of data. All we know is that Luke in the book of Acts, is telling us that a prophet came from Jerusalem and made a prediction, and that prediction came true. There was going to be a famine. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, that's where Jerusalem is, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So I, just follow with me through the progression here. The church gathers in Antioch. The church in Antioch is edified, and now the church is taking action. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lesson there for us. There's a lesson there for us. What are we a church of action? Anyway, let's just look at that real quick. First of all, the problem is presented. Uh, this this uh, prophet comes down and makes a prediction about a coming famine. And I, I reference Genesis 41 because in Genesis 41, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, right? And he, and he says kind of the same thing. There's going to be a famine. And, you know, what you, know, what you ought to do is store up some grain for the next so many years. And then when the famine comes, then you can distribute the grain to the people. Pharaoh very wisely takes Joseph and says, you're the man, going to make you second in command over, over Egypt. And you're in charge of this grain storage program that's going to end up saving many, many people, including the house of Jacob, from the famine. And so we see Christians doing kind of a similar thing. They're presented with this prophecy that famine is going to come. And so what do they begin to do? Each according to their ability, which is a very biblical New Testament prop. Uh, they're not taking out debt or whatever. They're, they're giving as they have means to give to, to uh, put some money together to send relief to the church in Jerusalem. So the problem is presented, and then action is taken. They actually follow through based on what they believe. They follow through and take action. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. You might notice something about me. I don't know if you've picked up on this or not, because I don't think it's happened a whole a whole that all that many times in the 10 years that I've been here. But in the times where there's been a major natural disaster or a, a, a particular place in the United States or even around the world that needs help, I don't know if you notice this about me or not, but I tend to not be a kind of guy that wants to raise money and send it to FEMA. Or, 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 or the Red Cross. Don't have anything against the Red Cross. I, I'm a regular blood donor. I just donated last week. Uh, they got this new thing, by the way, with the blood donations where they, they mark the vein on your arm before they stick the needle in with like, like a marker, which is kind of hard to get off once you 
But the lady that did it the time before last, uh, she was a delightful lady, and she looked at my veins, and she says, if I got to mark that, I'm in the wrong line of business. See, you got good veins. So she did not mark it. Uh, anyway, I, I don't have a problem with FEMA. I don't have a problem with the Red Cross. But you know what? Where I want to send my relief is the local church that's near that problem. Number one, let's get them back up and running on their feet. And then number two, let, let's let them not just take material goods, and, but let's let them demonstrate the love of Christ in their communities where these disasters are going on. Um, so that's been my knee-jerk reaction to some of these things. Galatian, uh, and then the relief is sent. The relief is sent. They, uh, they actually gather up the money and they take it. Now, Saul is not a real popular person in Jerusalem at that time. I don't know if you know that. So I don't know how they got the money there. There's all this speculation. Did they meet the elders outside the city? Did Paul go in by stealth? We don't know. But somehow they, the text tells us that Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas got the money to the elders there. And Matthew 25, 40 says this, Truly I say to you, as you did one of these, to the least of these, as you did it to the least of these, brothers, you did it to me. When we have churches and, and, and uh, we know of fellow believers that are in need and need help, we are to do the best we can to help them out as we have provision to do so. We always have to remember a, a very biblical principle that we often forget the money, that we, the money that's in each of your possessions, you are a steward of God's money. It's the healthiest, best way to live. And we're commanded to see it that way. This is all God's. We don't take any of it with us. Why we have it, we are stewards of it. So let's steward it well. Now, last thing I want to say on this point before, before I uh, button this up here is uh, I just want to point out the fact that though the church in Antioch is in Antioch and it's different than the church in Jerusalem, which is in Jerusalem, different cast of characters, different socioeconomic stuff, different culture maybe in Antioch versus Jerusalem, they're staying connected with each other. And I just think that that's something... Honestly, that's something that I miss about my time in Indiana. Not that I'm complaining about being in Ohio. But in Indiana, I was a part of a very loose affiliation of churches called the IFCA. And in the IFCA, we gathered quarterly as pastors of these churches just to encourage one another and to help one another out. So when the church, the Bible church in Trafalgar was missing a pastor, we would gather around and say, well, how can we provide pulpit supply and help the church in Trafalgar get back up and running again, right? Which is probably a small town you've never heard of. And... Um, we could do better at that here at Delaware Bible Church. I'm not advocating that we join the Southern Baptist Convention or that we join the Ohio Bible Fellowship or any other, but, but, but just to be aware of those like-minded churches around us and perhaps construct a way that we could fellowship with one another from time to time or check in on one another or support one another from time to time, I think would be good and healthy for us to do. All right, what does this passage teach us about church planting? Well, here's the answer to the question. The formation of the church in Antioch teaches us that followers of Jesus Christ need to be gathered, taught the word of God, and encouraged to practice it. Gathered, taught the word of God, and encouraged to practice it. And I, I try to make these messages, you know, to the extent that I can, more portable. So I didn't put this in your outline, but I boiled this down to kind of three words that I think you can take with you in your head 
or jot in your Bible somewhere, which is, which is this. When we, a, a church really ought to do these things. Gather, train, and do. Gather, train, and do. And if I was to give a report card on Delaware Bible Church, according to the, the, the pattern that we see here in Acts chapter 11, I would say that we're doing a good job at gathering. And I would say that we're doing a, a good job, but we could do a better job at training. And I think that we really need to step up our game in doing. In, in each one of us adopting the mindset that Pastor Scott, Pastor Brad, Pastor Aaron aren't the primary ministers of this church, that we are all ministers of Delaware Bible Church. Ministering the good news, loving one another with good works, and um, advocating for Christ out in the public square, spreading the gospel. So, by, just by way of possible application, perhaps the Lord's already spoken to you, and, and in, in your mind, you've, you've kind of heard from God this morning and say, there are some things I need to change. Fine, do that. Don't pay attention. Just zone out for a minute. But if that's not you, here's some things to be thinking about. Number one, are you part of a Christian relationship that challenges you? Don't be a person that just hides out at church. And let me just, let me just tell you a story. I can tell a lot about a person if I, I can tell a lot about you as a person if I just give you a little bit of a provocation. If I just say to you, listen, if I were to sit down with you and say, over coffee and, and say, listen, I see you at church all the time, but I don't ever see you volunteering for this or that. I don't, I don't see that you're really involved in anything. Shoot, I don't even see that you're in a life group learning how to practice the skills of building each other up even in that context. And if I were to say to you, you need to get on the stick, as my mom used to say. And your response to that would be, how dare you? And I've seen it before, many times. Then the problem's not with me, brother or sister. You have to ask yourself the question whether you are um, are you really uh, following uh, what Jesus wants you to do in this life? And in order to do that, we each and every one of us have to be in a relationship that challenges us to grow and change and become more like Christ. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And then there's the rest of it. That word stir one another up is the word provoke. Provoke. Do you have someone in your life that says, Get your act together, buddy. Like, you're really doing well in these areas. That's encouragement. But you really need to grow in these areas. And here's like two or three things you could really work on. That's, that's a different gear in the relationship. And I think that some, so often Christians, we can fall into a pattern where we are only accepting, you're so great, you're so good, everybody gets a partition, participation award. We've seen what that's done to society. Let us not let that happen in the church. We have to have a relationship with one another that's loving enough and kind and caring enough to say, you need to grow. Let me, let me help you. Let me show you the way. Let me encourage you. But you need, to, you need to step it up a notch. Secondly, have you adopted a training mindset? You know, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the Great Commission, you know, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And Are you training for that mission?
Have you really adopted that as, as that made your to-do list for this week? Alongside with, you know, picking up eggs and butter at the store and get the car fixed and, you know. And then third and finally, what tools are you missing? Now, this is me asking you for help, right? I'm going into the next 10 years here. How can I help you? How can I train you? How can I equip you? What tools are you missing from your tool bag to do the work of ministry? If you have any suggestions, like we could really use some training in this area or that, send me an email, and I will be supremely grateful for it. And even feel free to tell me to get my act together, because I need to hear that too from time to time. All right. This is a rich passage of Scripture. I mean, the whole book of Acts I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that I love about the book of Acts, but, but you know, let me just cut to the chase here. When we get to the end of this book, the, the book of Acts ends very abruptly as if to tell us as the church today in Delaware, Ohio, keep going. This, this mindset, this activity that's going of planting churches, edifying churches, spreading the gospel around, um, making new, you know, uh, spreading the gospel so that God can get a hold of people's lives and grow them and change them. Keep going. Keep carrying out the mission. Father, we thank you for this uh, text. It's challenging. It's good and helpful. Uh, Father, let us be a church here at Delaware Bible Church where we gather, we train, and then we do the work of your ministry so that we can become more like your son, Jesus Christ, as you work in and through us so that we can experience the joy not of you know, watching our favorite team win a game that they're going to have to win again next year. Those, those are all wonderful things that you've given us in this life to enjoy. But to see someone, to see you do a work in someone's life to ch- change their eternal destiny. To think for a moment that you've entrusted us, even us, with the work of sharing the good news Father, it's incredible that you allow us this privilege. And so help us to take it seriously and to be mindful of it daily. In Jesus' name, amen.